Welcome to the Give Back Economy, a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise. Now with your host, Peter Miller. And today we're going to South Africa to talk to Don Sayre, and we'll get into his background in a minute. But it's a lot warmer over there than it is in uh, Toronto. So <laughs> you can uh, you can enjoy that. So yes, Don, tell us about your academic background and where it took place. Sure, um, I'm not really much of an academic, although I did um, in the early years start at the University of Regina. Um, at the time, I was also uh, doing my pilot's license, but. Um, yeah, I started just a general Bachelor of Arts degree and then transferred to University of Guelph uh, to pursue international development studies. And then from there, in the mid to late, actually it was late 90s, 98, I finished in Guelph. We, uh, my wife and I, undertook to get any job we could. She was a teacher at the time, and uh, I was just looking for well-paying uh, factory jobs and whatever I could do to pay off that student debt with the view of using that to make even less money in Africa. <laughs> so it's a great career if uh, you don't mind the currency of uh, helping others rather than money in the bank. Okay, so let's talk about your work uh, career. Where did you start first and then? Yeah, um, well, I started through um, an organization called Christian Children's Fund of Canada in the early 90s. Uh, this is, again, when I was fresh out of high school in Saskatchewan, uh, Regina. They had an internship program called ISIS, an unfortunate acronym today, but <laughs> it was uh, International Skills in Service, and I, I believe it only lasted a few years. But they took young you know, men with uh, people with zeal, young people out of university or starting university in that sort of age cohort to just give them experience in a third world co uh, context. And uh, I had really no experience. Uh, in fact, I really was quite naive at the time, but I was willing and uh, went to Angola for two months. And that's really where things um, changed in my life. I was going to be an aviator, planned on being an aviator flew a plane at 14, um, you know, long, long before I even drove a car. It was in my blood. Growing up in northern Saskatchewan, you can't help but either hate or love airplanes because they're everywhere. That's the lifeline of many communities up there. And I loved them. And that was going to be my life. But, um, yeah, the Lord had something else planned for me. And in that time in Angola showed me that, uh, you know, working with those people who had nothing, the poorest of the poor, literally. Uh, at that time, Angola had just come out of a 24-year civil war. If you can call it a truce, um, even while we were there, there was tracer bullets flying overhead at night, and it wasn't there was no stability. There was just maybe a lack of ammunition, I'm not sure. But there was peace talks that had started. And, uh, yeah, that, that really exposed me to a world um, that I had never seen, and... I had a desire. In fact, it was, I, I was telling people recently that was my hardest goodbye was actually leaving my time there 
and I was resolved to go back either to Angola or in that context where with very little you can make such a big difference. Yeah. Okay, what happened after Angola? Mm. Right, yeah, I'm finishing my story. <laughs> well, coming back, yeah, that's when I uh, enrolled in the University in Regina, then transferred to, to Guelph. Um, and I had actually met my future wife in Angola. She was doing something completely different, but we our paths crossed. And uh, it was just uh, meant to be, I suppose. And uh, she was in the Hamilton area. I was in Regina. And one of the reasons I was motivated to transfer to Ontario anyway was was her definitely but the the international development studies in Guelph was really appealing to me at the time um yeah and it, for a, lot, a number of reasons it, it hasn't, didn't promise or didn't deliver what it promised but uh, we can get into that later uh, but it was good a good background a good uh, basic set of skills and I think one professor Neff I think it was who said it basically qualifies you to read read each category of the newspaper intelligently <laughs> so from the economics to the politics that's it's broad but very very shallow um i suppose you would have to go on to to make something of it so from there yeah, we paid off our student loans and we joined emmanuel international which is based in stoville just north of you in 2000 and they put us through their at the time very rigorous training school uh, deployed us to Malawi for about a year and then bravely gave us the the reins to the work in South Africa. And uh, they no longer regret that decision. I think we have finally redeemed ourselves <laughs> as competent in-country representatives. But, yeah, we were young and uh, they were too kind to us <laughs> to give us that responsibility. But we've been here then in South Africa since uh, 2004, so it's been almost 20 years. Yeah. So what are your responsibilities? Well, the, the country representative title really just means we're responsible for the uh, reporting of project funds to Revenue Canada. And uh, obviously, as an NPO, Emmanuel International has to report how ex things are expensed uh, according to line item. And so it's very administrative. Um, and if anybody wanted to join our projects in South Africa, we would be the ones who would vet them. Uh, we would establish partnerships with either local churches or other NGOs. Um, so on the ground here, we kind of represent the vision and values of Emmanuel International in Canada, and we deploy those kinds of that kind of work and ethos in South Africa. So we're church-based. We partner with local churches um, for the sustainability of it, um, obviously for the biblical values of it. And uh, even, the, um, I suppose, even the network, the local church in Africa is one of the most extensive networks, and they do provide a real grassroots community hub for any kind of project you can imagine, from water wells to entrepreneurial training. So that it's worked very well for Emmanuel. It doesn't make us wealthy, it doesn't make us big, but it does make us very cost-effective and sustainable. So what kind of projects do you undertake, Don? Are they uh, rural, urban? Generally, they are, and with Emmanuel International, South Africa is, among a couple of other countries, a bit unique. 
we are in a, what we call a peri-urban context. So if you know a bit about South Africa's history, the apartheid uh, legacy, we now have a rapid influx of people coming in from rural areas into the urban area. And um, so I'm just trying to block out the sun here. It's reflecting right into my eyes. We have uh, rapidly growing informal settlements around and amongst uh, the green areas in the cities. And that's created a very unique, um, well, I suppose there are several countries that have this problem, but unique to sub-Saharan Africa, where I would say statistically even in Cape Town, where we are, nearly nearly half of the population, if you consider Guguletu, Kailicha, Longa, these larger townships would almost make up half the city population if you were to do a survey. Uh, which would be very difficult because a lot of them are illegal. Um, they're, you know, the census hasn't been done in many, many years that would be reliable. Um, the township that we work in, which is called Masapumaleli, um, in the deep south, it's actually technically south of Cape Town, has about 60,000 people in an area that it was designed originally to only house about eight or 9,000 people. So that allocation of land, which the apartheid government would have partitioned off as sort of a labor sector, an area where labor would be housed, um, is now so dense that we have double and triple story shacks built on, upon on top of each other. So it's it's getting uh, yeah absurd actually and dangerous. And our safe house that we run in in that township are now being kind of uh, blocked off by these monstrosities of shacks. So we have, we even have a fire um, wall, a fire break around two of our homes because a lot of the shacks are just made of wood and cardboard insulation and tin. And so when there's a shack fire, it spreads very quickly because they're right upon each other. So we have a fire break, but now they're towering over our homes. So it's almost pointless to have that. Um, but yeah, that that's that's we're not in rural areas, but rural conditions, and so we have the kind of yeah. For example, you'll have maybe five shacks or six shacks per water point, and one toilet for every six or seven shacks. And in those shacks, you'll have four or five families, four or five people in each one, and they're smaller than most garages so you can see that it's really dense um, it's not sustainable it's it's not a dignified life at all and uh, yeah it, so we are ministering in according to EI's ethos the poorest of the poor but in this country it happens to be an urban context so it's unique to Emmanuel International but certainly reaching the the most vulnerable people group Well, you may find this interesting. My cousin, along with a few other people, fought Nelson Mandela to uh, Toronto for a rally in Toronto a few years ago. So that would be a few years ago, yeah. <laughs> yeah, wow, that is that is interesting. Yeah, actually, uh, another Mandela story is our, our very first house mother, and these are women who are kind of beyond child-rearing age, semi-retirement, uh, who feel called to take on this position. Uh, um, her, her, Our first house mother, Rachel Mandolo, 
is related to Mandela in the Eastern Cape. She grew up in that same area that he that he's actually buried now. Yeah, so there's a family connection there. Yeah. yeah. So we, we now have to get into safe houses and explain what they are sure. and what they do. The, the safe house work uh, was inspired by several years of working in the HIV prevention and care ministry. Uh, we were invited in 2004 to work with an NGO in this area and doing great prevention work. We built clinics, uh, we built a 22-bed hospice, we had uh, community health care workers who were trained to do pre and post test work. Um, and we had fantastic funding from even USAID. Uh, we were actually one of the first recipients through the PEPFAR program, which still runs today. It started with George W. Bush all those years ago and has still been approved and endorsed by subsequent governments because it is working. It's, a, it's effective in, in many ways, in some ways not so. But through that work, we realized the um, kind of a terrifying and, and, and tragic realization is that children, preteen children, uh, children as old as six, seven, are behaving in the same promiscuous ways as their fathers or their their uncles. It's seen as a recreation rather than something that is to be treasured and precious. And we realized then that there's no after-school program or life skills program that can really make that kind of difference because what they see in the home is always going to overrule um, or have more influence on them than what we teach you know, for a few hours a week. And so although our program isn't large, it's deep because we work with children who have no family, who have no uh, aunties or uncles or grannies that will take them in. And often their parents have died because of HIV and, and AIDS, or they've been abandoned, um, or they've been taken out of an abusive situation. We have them in homes that is built like a family unit, where there's six children per home. There's um, a, a level of intimacy um, and closeness that you would find in any loving home, I would hope. Um, and it's very unlike an orphanage. We did investigate the idea of orphanages, and we visited quite a few. In fact, there are some even in that township of Masapumaleli. But our our surveys and our studies have shown that as good as they are, as efficient as they are, and cost-effective as they are, it's very difficult to avoid that problem of a child coming in as a number and coming out institutionalized. They are institutions by design, and they unfortunately do come out often institutionalized. So we wanted to avoid that. Um, if this was going to work, this was the way it was going to work, is that you'd have house parents who would call their children their children, and the children were referred to the house parents as mom and dad. And um, after about 11 years of doing it, we could say that it's definitely more effective. Uh, we've now had about 12 children who have come through our safe homes. We have three at the moment and six children per home. And although we've not had roaring success in terms of, you know, poster children for the next generation. We've had some rebellious kids. We've had some kids who just 
can't get past their previous lives of thievery and uh, you know uh, criminality because often they've lived on the street for years before they come to us the one thing that they do is they keep coming back to say hi to mom and to say hi to dad so there is a closeness there and their their story isn't finished yet you know they still might come right and uh we pray for them. We hope that that would be the case. And for some children, they have come right, and that's made a tremendous difference for them. And they've gone on to find work uh, in, in the field that they've studied, and uh, we're very pleased with that. So it's, as I said to you, uh, I don't know who, who referred me to you um, or who recommended that you, you interview me. What I said at that um, the banquet was that our focus really is at one child at a time, one one heart at a time, because we're not going to transform South Africa with this kind of work. But there's a, a knock-on effect. There's a positive feedback cycle that when, that when that child becomes an adult and he knows what it means to be a mother or be a father and what it means to love your neighbor more than yourself, well, that, that actually impacts your neighbor. They see that genuine care and that genuine love and god can work through that and that neighbor will then be impacted and so on and so on and so it's we're not trying to moralize them into good behavior we really want them to be genuinely uh touched by the lord and and really feel that eternal love that they can share so that that is our focus it's maybe too simple (laughs) but we've seen amazing results so do you track these people after they come out of the house? Yeah, not as a not as a monitoring or evaluation practice, but we don't have to because they keep coming back. So that's the amazing thing. Yeah, uh, we have we have talked about having sort of a, a professional monitoring and evaluation uh, system, and in fact, that's my my background. My first role here was doing just that for about six years. But there are a lot of moving parts in in this kind of work. And one thing I really try to encourage as a an ME practitioner is not to attribute your project to any kind of behavior change. It's very difficult have, without having a very large control group that has like just one influence, uh, which is impossible. <laughs> it's very hard to say because of our work. C's way is now a good man. Uh, you just can't, and too many organizations do do that sort of thing. I call it the happiness index because boy A is happy and we were part of his life. Therefore, he is happy because of us. Um, so yeah, when it comes to behavior or life-changing um, conduct, we just can't attribute anything other than to say what we know we're doing is good because of just you know, common sense and good practice. We know that they're uh, removed from abusive situation. We know they're not living on the street. We know they have a very predictable and safe environment to come to. We know that the house mothers help them with their schoolwork. They know that the moms or dads are always going to be there. Um, So the things that we know work sociologically in a good home and nuclear family anywhere in the world definitely apply here. And so that's basically what we apply is those principles. So yeah, it's again, very unsophisticated, but <laughs> common sense says it does have a good effect. 
So I hope. <laughs> the people that run these safe houses, do you have a training program for them? Yes. Um, well, yes and no. So the what what we are looking for are not good employees, and that may sound counterintuitive or almost even illegal. Um, <laughs> what we are looking for people or house parents. Generally, we are looking for a house mother because in this culture, it's very hard to find a Kosa or a Zulu man who's married, who who even feels like child rearing is his role. In fact, they culturally, that's not. So to find a father, which we have uh, in one, ho- one house, um, who wants to do that work is is remarkable. So we're very happy that we even have that in the, well, it's technically in two homes because they're right next to each other. So Temba, who is married to Beauty, who's our second house mother, he's kind of the proxy father role model for the two homes. And he's a great role model. He has his own business. He, he He's a contractor who does house painting. Uh, he goes to work every day. He has his own truck. Um, he builds up his business. They see the fruit of his labor adding to his business. He has employees. Um, he's disciplined. So we really enjoy that he that he has that influence on them. Um, but the house mothers, in terms of training, I want to see that they've been active in the kind of work or the, or the concerns that they have already. So if we have an applicant who says they would like to be a house mother, and because we're a, we are a Christian organization, I want to see that they're involved in that kind of thing already. I mean, if they have no role in their church or no accountability or they're invisible in the community, obviously that's a red flag. Um, even if they had, you know, uh, child care experience or young, uh, what do you call it, early childhood education experience or occupational therapy, those are all well and good. But the kind of responsibility that they have you have to remember these uh, our homes don't really discriminate we can have children in nappies or or diapers or teenagers and there could be a mixture of uh, both and if a teenager let's say a 16 year old boy comes in who's only known the street and now we're trying to integrate him into a family unit you're asking (laughs) for the most difficult job in the world and now if there's six children like that, you're really overwhelming somebody who's looking for work. So we're not looking to hire somebody who wants a job. We're looking for somebody who feels called to do this. And in the interview process, you can kind of tease that out by their their commitment to other things that they've done or really why do they want to do it. And we I have a list of about 30 questions. And, you know, some of the questions are proxies for the other questions just to verify what they've said and and then you look at their life you speak to their friends you speak to their pastor um and you get a good indication and of course with any job there's a trial period so my first criteria is are they going to really love the kids like we need them to love the kids because if they're looking for work i guarantee you they're going to run away they and (laughs) they we we uh, we actually work closely with an or- another organization similar to ours, similar ethos, who have many house mothers that sneak out at night because they just can't cope. They wanted a job. They thought, great, I'll get a new home. I just have to feed some kids. Perfect. I have no expenses. This is a dream come true. And within months, they're running away into the dark. 
because it is such a burden. If you really genuinely want to love these kids, it's going to work. It's going to be devastating emotional work. But you'll you'll be resolved to do that if you really feel called to it. But if you're just there for a job, you're going to do the minimum amount of work. You're just going to make sure that they're clothed, there's food on the table, and then you're going to hide in your room the rest of the time. <laughs> so with the training part, so that's a very long answer. So we Don, do have Don some... where, where do you see this in three years from today? Do you see 20 houses? Well, we, our growth is actually capped um, by government bureaucracy. So we've actually been told by the... Uh, um, the Department of Social Services in our area that we can't build any more homes in Masakumaleli. We have permission to build in another community called Ocean View, but that's about eight k's up the road. Um, logistically, that would be a, a bit of a stretch for us in terms of just being in touch with them and commuting, commuting and you know managing at a, at a distance, as it were. But it's not beyond the realm of possibility. But yeah, three years, it's, it, it, that is an option. In the more immediate future, I see us getting out of Masapumaleli. Now, we went into Masi with intent. We thought, well, this is the community that children know. They have their school. They have their library. They have their churches. This is their context. Uh, this is their friend network for some of them. Um, so we wanted to have, and of course, the cost there is much lower. When it comes to buying property and maintaining it, your rates are much lower, or what do they call it in Canada, the taxes. Um, and we have all the facilities we need there. Even though it's informal, we have we have like running water, obviously electricity. The homes are built from scratch, and they have all the comforts. They're very unlike the shacks around them. So yeah, it is. It is. It's very obvious that the kids living there have a better life. But now with the, the population booming, we've started there 10 years ago when the population was maybe around 25, 30,000. It is, yeah, almost doubled that in that time. So along with that, you don't have a sense of community anymore. Neighbor still no neighbor, immediate neighbor, but now you've got triple story shacks and you have people that are migrant workers. You have young men coming in from the Eastern Cape or even uh, Zimbabwe, Malawi, who are just in and out. They're not integrating. Um, there's no sense of, of uh, continuity any longer. So crime is up uh, and violent crime is up. And the infrastructure is just overloaded. We spend a lot of money getting our pipes flushed regularly because the plots around us, which normally would have had, well, either a single RDP house or in, in many cases, there are like eight or nine checks on that plot, now have 40 people, 50 people in a plot that was designed for six. And those pipes just can't take it. So we have to pay a private plumber because the city is just overwhelmed. They can't come and rescue us. So we pay a plumber to come and flush the pipes. <laughs> These silly things that you wouldn't think of. So my in the next couple of years, I'd like to get them out of Masa Pumaleri into the town of Fishhook, or even Ocean View, which is much better uh, in terms of population density. It's got its own issues, but it's it's better. 
um, or even in the surrounding area. There's an area called Capri, uh, there's Comiki. There are options. So in the next few years, my big move, my desire is to get them out of that yeah, highly dense area. Okay, so I'm going to end the podcast, but I want to talk to you. So okay. thank you, Don. Pleasure. You're doing great work. Thanks. Thank you very much.